Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and I'm joined on this episode by my colleague Anthony Housefather, the Liberal MP for Mount Royal on the island of Montreal. Anthony and I were both first elected in the class of 2015, but he's long been actively involved in politics as a councillor, as a mayor, and even before all that, as a young liberal in his teenage years. We've always gotten along in part because I think we do our best to approach our parliamentary roles with a similar outlook, one that's less partisan, focused on ideas, and with a willingness to speak one's own mind. Anthony's done just that recently in relation to the fallout from a couple of recent scandals, from Hockey Canada's actions in response to sexual assault allegations, to the government's inexplicable anti-racism funding, to an organization led by someone with a long history of anti-Semitic comments. Now, Anthony has been at the forefront of addressing anti-Semitism in Parliament and on the global stage, and our work has aligned here too in some ways, as we've both worked internationally to hold social media platforms accountable for online hate. Of course, we don't always agree, as you'll see through our discussion of the real-world implications of the notwithstanding clause, but that reasonable disagreement is central to improving our own views and advocacy, I think, it's certainly central to the party we are both part of, and central to a stronger democracy as well. Oh, it's a great pleasure to be with you, Nate. It is good to see you. It's been a while. And I invited you on for a number of reasons. In fact, you're an interesting guest to me because there are so many different topics we could talk about. But I want to start because you have participated in the hearings with Hockey Canada. And maybe you can get a bit of a background as to how this even came before Parliament. But also, what are you looking at? I know Peter Julian has been suggesting folks need to come back and, and there's more to the story and additional accountability that needs to be brought to bear. But what are you hoping to see and what do you think a proper resolution of the circumstance ultimately will be? Sure. So this all came to be where there was an incident in 2018 where members of our Canadian junior team were at a banquet in London, Ontario, and allegedly uh, at, at night they went to a bar, they went to another bar. Um, one of the team, team members met a woman, brought her back to his hotel room, and then she alleged the next day through her father or stepfather that uh, uh, a number of the members of the team entered the hotel room that night and committed various sexual acts against her will, and also that she was intoxicated to a point where she couldn't consent either. That's the general gist of this. Hockey Canada was alerted the next day. They eventually, in that night, advised the police. The police started an investigation. Hockey Canada started its own investigation through uh, an independent law firm, Hen and Hutchinson, and that investigation eventually stopped. And the police eventually did not press charges, and 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 the the matter was closed. Then this year, uh, in the spring, the young woman filed a claim against Hockey Canada. Nine different John Doe defendants who are members of the Canadian Junior Team in 2018 who are alleged to have committed the the, the sexual acts against her will and against uh, other hockey federations as well. Hockey Canada proceeded in a, an incredibly strange way, as has come out in testimony, to settle the claim within three to four weeks, professing that they didn't know who was involved. They didn't know if it was true or not, although the first time they were before us, they said that they denied a number of the elements of the claim and proceeded to have the young woman sign a non-disclosure agreement that prohibited her from speaking to any third parties about the incident. They also, in the settlement agreement, settled on behalf of all the John Doe defendants and the other hockey associations without having alerted them to the fact that there was a claim or obtaining their written consent to uh, settle the claim. They also did this where their board of directors never minuted any agreement to settle the claim or delegate the authority to settle the claim to any signatory of Hockey Canada. So from a corporate 
view, from a legal view, and from a general common sense viewpoint, everything that Hockey Canada did here was incredibly strange. Um, and this has all come out in testimony before the committee. I think it's really important that parliamentary committees play this kind of accountability function. I've tried to do this on a few occasions in my own committee work, sometimes successfully, mostly successfully, I think, as far as it goes. But these opportunities don't come up very often. We got to seize them when they do. So I think it was important that Hockey Canada came before you and there was that public accountability on behalf of Canadians because there was a great amount of outrage. Sponsors have obviously dropped their support for Hockey Canada as a result of this. Federal government has frozen its own funding to Hockey Canada as a result of this. What's the way forward? I got asked this on a radio interview and I didn't have a great answer because I hadn't been doing the in-depth committee work that you've done. When you've seen what you've seen, but knowing that there has to be a way forward for Hockey Canada, given the importance of the sport to young Canadians, how do we make sure that the leadership at Hockey Canada and how do we make sure that the organization is best serving young Canadians and reckoning with its history to make sure something like this doesn't happen again. So I totally agree with you, Nate, uh, from a number of viewpoints. Number one, I believe that parliamentary committees have important roles to play in terms of seeking answers and proposing concrete solutions. And both you and I being government MPs ever since we were first elected in 2015 are always subject to that, well, you know, do we really want to pry into our own government kind of mentality that seeks to limit us in what we actually enter into and delve into as subjects in committee? And I think it's perfectly appropriate for parliamentary committees to ask these questions and then to recommend. The goal here to me is it's not only Hockey Canada that has a problem and we need to investigate and make recommendations to Hockey Canada um, in terms of their own governance. And also, I think there has to be exchange at the top at Hockey Canada. But we need to look at other sports federations in the country and see, is this common within other sporting federations as well? There's this culture of we don't care about you know, egregious sexual misconduct that's happening in order to make sure that every kid in this country and every adult can participate in sport safely in the sport that they love. Then there has to be accountability at Sport Canada. In this case, Sport Canada was advised of the allegations in 2018, and nobody thought it was important enough to alert the minister. You know, I mean, there's something wrong right there. And Sport Canada has a practice now where you need to report the number of incidents that happen that are claims of sexual misconduct, but it doesn't have internal experts that could advise federations to tell them how to handle these claims. It doesn't have investigators or monitors that continue to go through and keep on top of these claims. And we need to see how Sports Canada needs to be reformed so that it can properly serve as a mentor to the federations, all the sporting federations, to assist them when they when they need expertise. That should be a rule for Sports Canada. And so to me, our goal as a committee should be to have Sports Canada be reformed and to make recommendations to the minister to do that. I don't mean to depart from this conversation so quickly because there's a lot we could well on here, but there is also a lot I want to ask you about and related because you mentioned the need for accountability. We're government MPs. We sometimes criticize the government, frankly, as far as it goes. And I think you and I take a similar approach to our roles as parliamentarians to be more even-handed and, and to be forthright in our criticism at times when it's deserving. The federal government itself should be subject to some criticism in respect of its own handling of federal funding recently. There was a consultant who made incredibly anti-Semitic and homophobic tweets and, and public posts. I, profile, I think, was more private, but these were posts that were very public in nature and, and 
have been subsequently, I've seen multiple posts that have been shared on Twitter for sure. And the government has now, you can fill me in here, but the government has now, I saw a statement from Minister Hassan that they've cut funding to this organization or frozen funding or suspended funding, however you want to put it, in response to their investigation in in relation to these tweets. It should go without saying that anyone who is posting like this should be nowhere near federal funding. But walk me through the details of the organization that received this funding, the connection to this individual, and the government's response, and and was it an adequate response? Sure, uh, 100%. So basically, this is an organization named CMAC that received 133000 in federal funding, not from Minister Hussein, but from the previous minister before that, uh, before the last election, in order to conduct anti-racism training for media. And there was going to be six sessions across the country. They've done three. This gentleman, Laith Marouf, uh, was billed as a senior consultant for the organization. And he was involved and was one of the speakers at at least two of the three trainings so far. He has a long history of public anti-Semitic, anti-Francophone, anti-American, anti-Black. I, I mean, but anti-Semitic is, seems to be his core. It seems to be, you know, his go-to tweet. And his page was public until Twitter closed him down. And now he has a new account that just got frozen that was a private account. But just Googling the man and Googling his connection to the organization, because this organization was set up at his, his home, the principal resident, his home, principal residence was the organization's address. He and his partner founded the organization. And, and, and a simple Google search would have stopped this egregious error from happening. Um, Not so, a lot of due diligence required here. No, no. And so, what it you know i i first found out about it i alerted the minister i've been disappointed how slow the reaction was originally myself and other mps were pushing on this but he's finally taking the right action which is suspending the contract and announcing that the organization needs to account for itself but uh, he also uh, after uh, you know more discussion has now committed that there will be a review in heritage canada and there has to be a very serious review of how this happened policies put in place to make sure this never happens again um, and I also support the Heritage Committee looking into this and reviewing how this contract was awarded and making sure that the policies the minister suggests that we vet and make recommendations to make sure this never happens again, because this was just terrible. I mean, the minister was quoted in a press release along with this man. Now, so in addition to the contract being awarded, wow. there was another press release issued four months ago that had the minister's name and a quote along with a quote from this gentleman. Anybody who had Googled the man's name would know that you wouldn't want to associate the minister's name with, with, with the quote. So, so again, we both know that ministers don't go into the details of these press releases and these contracts when there's thousands of them that are awarded. But the minister's role and, and what he's accountable for is making sure that he figures out why this happened and make sure it never happens again. And that's what I'm going to hold him to. And, and that's what I think his responsibility is. Yeah, because there are two components based on what you've described here. One is $130,000 isn't a ton of money, but it's enough money that you do a basic amount of due diligence on the organization. And you can appreciate there will be things that are missed in relation to external consultants if they're truly external. You can't vet absolutely everyone associated with an organization. But where someone is so centrally involved in an organization, it goes without saying, I, I would hope, that you would seriously vet the individual's associate with an organization that are going to receive over $100,000 of public funds. The second piece of it is, 
as soon as as soon as you see anything remotely resembling tweets like this, you stop funding immediately. Yeah, I agree. It's not, it shouldn't be so complicated. But, but as we both know, and, and again, like I, I don't want to single out this one minister. As we both know, we have this tendency in government, right, to say, well, we have to go back to the department and ask them many, many questions and get legal advice and get this. And sometimes, just from a common sense viewpoint, the political need to say, sorry, this is done, is just is, is just dropped because everybody has to be so cautious, you know, 20,000 times. And, and I think often... You know, as an MP, one of the things that I find the most frustrating is when staff members of ministers try to tell MPs what they should or shouldn't ask at committees or what, you know, they are allowed or not allowed to study. And a lot of MPs seem to be fooled into the belief that they have to always follow exactly these recommendations and these guidelines when, no, we're the ones who are elected. We're the ones the population put their trust in. We have to use our own judgment and have our own mind. And determine whether something's reasonable or not. And I would venture to say that when people see 36 or 50 anti-Semitic tweets that are go beyond like anything that you would even imagine could be questionable, you would not have all these questions. You would just make a decision. And that's where I think a lot of times not only one person, but many of us are are, are surrounded by a culture where things don't happen quickly. And to marry the first two subjects that we've covered here in a way, but I think what made the Hockey Canada story so much worse for those of us observing it happen, and you were more involved than I was in, in, in exercising the accountability function, but it was the fact that the funds used to settle these cases, and, and it's now been nine or so cases since 1990 or whatever it was, but the funds came out of registration fees for young kids. And that was just a galling addition to the entire story that 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 sparked even further outrage and i think led the story and gave the story its legs over and above past controversies at hockey canada and and past sexual abuse stories that, that, that have come out and in the case of this one hundred thirty three thousand dollars and the anti-semitic tweets this was given to an organization ostensibly for anti-racism purposes so it's just this again just this intuitive outrage where you read the story and you're like what the fuck is happening <laughs> yeah exactly like I, I think a lot of times we have to learn to trust our instincts right and and where you see something that is just black and white to the average canadian would look absolutely ridiculous you have to take action you you can't just sit back and wait for weeks as you accumulate answers like and and, and this is where again the need for swift action just sometimes is obvious and and this you know these were both times where it's just counterintuitive what happened. You mentioned the need for common sense. It's something I agree with. I think we need sometimes more common sense in politics. You also have spoken and written about the need for less partisanship, and you've described yourself more recently in the chamber as somebody who is generally nonpartisan. And then I went back and I, I did my research, Anthony. So I read a short bit that you'd written two days after the three days after the throne speech in 2015 and in, in the National Post. And you wrote, one of the things I have always believed through my many years as a mayor and counselor at the municipal level is that politics works best when you make friends with the people who may have different political views. This allows you to work together in a constructive less confrontational spirit. You spent a very long time 
successfully as a counselor and then mayor before your run as an MP. Have you found it easy to to navigate a less confrontational approach? Interesting question. So I think both of us, I, because I think we're similar in that way, are naturally driven to try to listen to everybody and try to find rational compromise. And I don't think, I think I've actually been surprised. I was surprised in 2015 by how little Ottawa is suited towards that. Because you have hyperpartisan exactly. people on all sides that, you know, just almost make it, they poison the relationships and make it almost impossible. And then you get criticized when you try to be reasonable, both by your, particularly from your own side. And, and that just, it, it's not my way. And so I've tried in my own way to navigate that by, you know, I, you know, I try to be a team player, but I also try to be reasonable and, you know, I rarely, I, I don't think you could find many instances in the, in the house because I speak to a lot of stuff where I ever talk about what the opposition party says or does. I just speak about my own ideas and, and I try to be friends with everybody and nice to everybody. And that's the best way to navigate it. But I was surprised at how Ottawa is not built on that mentality. And one of the things that I'm, I'm going to raise a really controversial question here, I think it's, you know, the United States has been horrible in terms of its terrible lack of bipartisanship. But the Congress is more suited to bipartisanship than the House because you don't have the executive branch sitting there in the Congress. And I really think that if I were designing a government, I would not combine the executive branch and the legislative branch. I, I think it makes it very difficult for the legislative branch to exercise its independence. And, and when you have the prime minister and the members of cabinet sitting there watching what you're saying and doing like before you vote, it, it, it's very difficult to exercise proper independence. So our system is not well suited toward multipartisanship or bipartisanship, I find. I have found the same thing. It takes extra effort to build relationships and to ensure that you're able to constructively work together and to carve out space for yourself where, you know, the whip came to me early days. And so I spent a lot of time with the whip early days. <laughs> Andy Leslie is a very nice man. Uh, he's also been a podcast guest in the past. But over time, it gets easier when people get to know you a bit better and know that you're still going to defend the team in many, most instances, and that you though are going to exercise a certain degree of independence. And that's part of what we promised and ran on 2015 and all of that. But it, it, it does take a considerable amount of intentional action. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think you Nate, more than anybody else have, have shown that. Um, I think, I think you certainly, uh, have shown your independence in a number of areas and and it's laudable. Like I always believe that when you do that, even if I disagree with you, it's something that is absolutely your right to do. And it's something that that we should be encouraging on our team, not discouraging. Like obviously on in like as we promised when we were elected as MPs, if it's a confidence vote, if it's a budget vote, if it's charter of rights vote, we all knew when we signed up that we're supposed to support the government position. We have a right in caucus to fight for our positions. But when we end up having a position, we support it. But that shouldn't extend to a wide range of other issues that nobody ever talked about during the election or nobody ever thought about before they're actually happening. And and I think we should be praising independence. And 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 it, it's unfortunate, no party. Like, I mean, we often get criticized. I, I see a lot of people write the liberals, they all vote like sheep. Well, the conservatives in the NDP also vote like sheep. I mean, it's not like one party has more independence and more freedom than the other parties do. All the parties are the same. And it's a question of how can we reconstruct the house to have more independence 
for individual MPs, which I think would be good for everybody in all parties. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And it leads me to an area where we probably disagree, but we're going to test this this premise that we can disagree and still be friendly colleagues. This is an easy one to disagree on, I think, actually, in that it's it's a bit technical, although it has real world implications and has had real world implications. You have been vocal about the problematic notwithstanding clause in your view. You've written the notwithstanding clause does not belong in our charter and should never be used. Anyone who cheers on use of the clause in one context should recognize that it will be a right that they support that will be taken away the next day. That was something you posted fairly recently a few months ago. And you've been incredibly critical. And it's in some ways, you've experienced this challenge directly, right? Like you've had a history of advocacy in the course of uh, minority language rights in Quebec in your municipal days, and then continued throughout your parliamentary career. And the Legault government has challenged minority rights and then preemptively used the notwithstanding clause. And so there are two components to me. I actually would would disagree very strongly against the preemptive use of the notwithstanding clause. But I have a, a, a more Roy McMurtry view of the notwithstanding clause than you do, I think. But give me your best shot. Why should we never consider the notwithstanding clause? Why should we, maybe, why should we remove it from the charter? So I guess I'll start with the fact that I've been directly impacted by the notwithstanding clause from the time I was a kid, where the Quebec government in 1989 invoked the notwithstanding clause to ban English from commercial science. After the Ford judgment of the Supreme Court that said that Quebec had the right to say that French has to be on science, must be even predominant on science if they want, but that they can't block English from being on science. And so as you know, a high schooler, as a teenager, I lived through a period of five years where even though my neighborhood was majority English, even though I lived in a pretty English environment in Montreal, bilingual, but, but mostly English, we were un- not allowed by law for any commerce or, 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 municipal- or the municipality uh, of Montreal or whatever, to have English signs. And, and to me, it was like saying, you're not allowed to be visible in your own neighborhood, in your own part of the world. And that was done because a government has a right to suspend fundamental freedoms. That's freedom of expression, freedom of religion. There may be other clauses in the charter where it's more arguable, but the most fundamental rights of all are in section two of the charter. And we made that right subject to the notwithstanding clause where any government can override them for five years just by a simple majority in the legislature. And, and I just don't think that's right. I think the United States has been able to function as a society with a bill of rights that is not subject to a notwithstanding clause, that, that governments can't withdraw a court decision just because they don't like it. Um, it allowed, when Roe versus Wade was law, for over 50 years to stop states from egregiously passing abortion bans that they would have liked to pass. And, and I, I just think that anybody who celebrates the use of the notwithstanding clause in any instance, for example, many Quebec nationalists celebrate the blocking of English or the stopping of people from wearing religious symbols on Bill 21, because in Quebec now it's Bill 21 that has it. It's it, it's it's Bill 96 that makes it uh, that an English person who comes from the United States can't get government services in English in Quebec. Um, you know, there's there, there's a level of, of ridiculousness in these laws to me that that means my rights are being overturned. And so somebody may celebrate that, but it, then it allows the government to say when it's a right that we deeply care about, such as, for example, abortion rights, 
I, I mean, abortion rights fall under a clause of the charter, you know, that, that, that is subject to the notwithstanding clause. So theoretically, some government could, even though the court has recognized that abortion is a fundamental right of a woman uh, to security and safety of her own body, to override that right and, and, and override any other right. So to me, celebrating it, Polyevre said that he's going to use notwithstanding clause on the court judgment related to, uh, to uh, mandatory minimum sentences. And, and, and I mean, all of these things, you know, where we disagree with it, we'll say, well, you shouldn't have used it. Where we do agree, we'll say, well, maybe we could use it. I just think there's no need for it. I think, I think when it comes to fundamental freedoms, once the court has made its decision, as long as we respect the, the Supreme Court, it, it, it's over. And, 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 and parliamentarians can always look at the rulings and narrowly tailor responses to them without egregiously violating the rights that have been recognized by the court. So that's my, my best two cents. Um, but I understand there's another view out there that there's times that the notwithstanding clause is appropriate. And, you know, and I get it. Well, you make a very persuasive case. And my best argument back is actually around political financing, because you mentioned the United States. And there's a long-standing literature in jurisprudence and political philosophy that worries about judicial supremacy on the basis that it is not as democratic. Judges, these appointed individuals, will have the, the be the final arbiters on matters of, of important public policy. Uh, Jeremy Waldron is a political philosopher in the U.S., and he was at, I was doing this master of laws and doing constitutional law and political philosophy. He, he was at this one seminar. And I said, well, your, your whole challenge, your whole theory of the case is really actually against the United States. In Canada, we have the notwithstanding clause. And doesn't that just ruin your argument entirely? Because you have judges that ultimately will decide most cases. But in these extreme scenarios, you have this safety valve where we are able to correct things. And you look at the Lochner era cases in the United States or I think the the worst decision to democracy in North America is Citizens United and the freedom of speech and freedom of expression, but via money, unfettered spending is a real challenge, I think, to democracy. And if the courts go down the one road of interpretation, not the Canadian road of interpretation, actually, around freedom of expression and political financing, but if they, if they went the American route and we didn't have something like the notwithstanding clause, I think that's actually a different challenge to democracy in some ways. And so I'm glad we have it with a caveat. And the caveat maybe is so large that it undermines the defense I have at all. <laughs> because the caveat being, you do need actors in the system to exercise restraint and to understand that this tool is not to be turned to for any reason whatsoever, certainly not preemptively, and certainly not until a decision has been litigated to the Supreme Court, and certainly not for something frivolous, like city council elections in Toronto, for example, and 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 messing about in those. So, and I think the mere threat of using it can be, a, can undermine that kind of restraint. And maybe in these political times in which we live, maybe we don't live in a time where actors are going to respect conventions sufficiently that it, it is a worthy tool. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, first of all, Citizens United is an egregious decision. I mean, there, there, there's no question about it. The U.S. Supreme Court has had a history from Karamatsu, uh, you know, uh, that that in turn allowed the Japanese Canadian uh, Americans to be interned, you know, to Dred Scott, to to Plessy versus Ferguson. You know, the, there, there's a history of uh, of decisions. But for example, 
when they do have an egregiously bad decision, for example, let's say Bowers versus Hardwick, which said that uh, a state could criminalize the private intimate relationship between two men, it was overturned in Lawrence versus Texas. You, 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 you have the court that over time does overturn its bad decisions, and you have a much more political Supreme Court in the United States than you do in Canada. I guess my end answer is, look, there's a proper rule for everybody. Legislators make laws, and the judiciary is there to interpret rights. And if the legislator is once again back there determining whether or not the court interpreted a right correctly and given veto power over the court's interpretation of a right, you have the possibility where the courts become meaningless because if you simply have one party that says we will use a notwithstanding clause in every instance where the court doesn't agree with us, which is allowed, you can use it every single day, what is our charter worth? So maybe there's a redesign of this that would require a unanimous vote of the legislature, require 90% in the legislature, or require a different, or not have fundamental freedoms that are subject to the notwithstanding clause. You know, but, but for the moment, the way it is designed, the way Section 33 is designed, a simple majority vote, I, I just have to say that shouldn't be in the charter. And that's actually an area where we can probably come to some agreement, because I think a ready improvement would be to make it some kind of supermajority vote, that if this is about truly correcting an obvious flaw and there's massive outrage and this is unsustainable and institutionally unsustainable that the court has made a decision such as Citizens United, then, you know, 66 percent, 65 percent, maybe there's some threshold that we could arrive at that is better than 50 percent plus one that would ensure that the majority is protected and democracy is preserved in a way while also ensuring that we're according still important respect and deference around rights. But one, one more argument, Nate, that I would make is, right, the notwithstanding clause doesn't apply to every right. For example, it doesn't apply to equality rights, at least the right of equality between men and women, right? And and so we've carved out some rights that it applies to, some rights that it doesn't apply to, and we've had no disaster in Canada for the last 40 years with the Charter with respect to the rights that it doesn't apply to. Nobody's ever come and said, my God, there's a disaster in Canadian society because we have this right and the notwithstanding clause doesn't apply to it and the government couldn't correct the decision of the court. So why is it really needed when we've had 40 years of experience with all of these rights that it doesn't apply to? It's a good argument. I, I'm sympathetic to everything you've said and, and, and casting it via abortion rights, casting it via your personal experience. I mean, Bill 21 and Bill 96 are incredibly problematic pieces of legislation that obviously undermine rights and, and a sense of pluralism in this country. And and so I'm glad that you've been opposed to that and, and opposed to these bills when on behalf of your community. And e even before you were opposing the Charter of Values, even before you were an MP from, from what I read. So it's incredibly important that we take a stand as against legislation like that. And I, and I, and I take the core point which you make, which is if despite all of this advocacy, despite the obvious violation of our charter, if it's as easy as 50% plus one, then how significant are these rights after all? And, and how how significant is the charter? So it's, it, it is a compelling argument. Now, an area where we agree, although an equally challenging area, because it requires a, a serious consideration of how we address harmful speech and hateful speech for sure, but, but are there other kinds of speech that ought to be on the radar and ought to be better addressed via working with social media platforms, via new accountability mechanisms and institutions. You and I have worked never together, I, I think, really seriously on this issue, but but we've each worked in our different ways. You should take over, by the way, 
my role on the this grand committee on disinformation. To my knowledge, you have been involved on it's the Interparliamentary Task Force to Combat Online Anti-Semitism. I'm interested in your work on that, what that task force is looking at and what it's working towards. Um, but you've also written about the virus of conspiracy and disinformation that pervades social media, and you've proposed a new kind of institution. So I think everyone is roughly aware of the problem now, and the pandemic is an obvious example, but the blatant anti-Semitism, some of which we've talked about already at the outset of this conversation, is widely available on social media too, and and that's incredibly problematic, and, and we should stamp that out. How do we go about doing it? And there's hate speech proper, and that seems there's an easier path there. And then there's other you know, the conspiracy theories that you were that you were getting at the disinformation associated with the pandemic is is something you were driving at too. How do we both stamp out anti Semitism? Are there other tools we need? But how do we how do we get at some of these other problems that aren't properly hate speech in a way that anti anti Semitism is? So it's a great and long question. Um, so the interparliamentary <laughs> task the Interparliamentary Task Force is actually something we set up during COVID uh, because we realized we could get together and meet with legislators from around the world virtually that, you know, before we used to do all these things in person. And it led um, a common group of people uh, on a bipartisan basis across the world to come together and say, look, we need a bipartisan group in each country that will set up a task force that will work to combat online anti-Semitism. So I co-chair it with U.S. Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz, but we have Republicans and Democrats from the U.S. We have a conservative, a liberal, and NDP from Canada. We have liberal and labor in Australia. We, ha you know, we, we have the two main parties or the three main parties in a multiplicity of countries. And we also now have the European Commission's anti-Semitism group that joined us. So we work together because um, and we're having, by the way, Nate, our first in-person hearings in Washington, D.C. at the Capitol on September 16th, where we start we start with uh, the anti-Semitism commissioners, Deborah Lipstadt from the U.S., Erwin Kotler from Canada, uh, Fernando Ladenberg from the OAS, the, e the EU's commissioner. And then we have a session with the platforms, with YouTube, with Meta, with Twitter, um, and with TikTok. And legislators will be questioning them. It'll be like a congressional hearing. But it's all set up to try to create solutions that we can use in all of our countries because all of this hate transcends borders and all of us have different laws and different charter rights that protect speech and the one thing that we have to understand is that platforms can't do 38 different things in 38 different countries we have to find ways that we work with the platforms to regulate bad speech uh, meaning hate speech that's illegal content or other illegal content and make sure that people are not driven toward legal speech that is dumb or bad speech which could be hateful content that's not hate speech. It could be conspiracy theories, um, et cetera. So their algorithms should not be driving people who are interested in denying the Holocaust to Holocaust denying sites. And that's part of the problem as well, that platforms drive hate to hate to monetize. So the goal for us is to sit with the platforms, sit with the anti-Semitism experts, civil society, legislators, and craft regulatory regimes that everybody could live with that doesn't send hate to people that are looking for solutions that takes away criminal content and that has platforms equally enforce their own rules with probably even better to have common definitions of what is anti-Semitism, what is anti-Black racism, what is homophobia that they can use in every country and not just different ones in, in, in each separate country. And so that's sort of what the goal of the task force is. And that's kind of how I look at 
what we in Canada need to do as a regulatory regime. We need to find a way that we don't have different rules in Canada that are different than, than the US, than England, than Australia. England's online harms bill is, I think, a very good tool in how to actually get there, where it imposes regulations on the platforms to follow common sense logic with you know regulatory oversight and potential fines if you don't do it. Um, and, and I think that that's kind of a regime that we should all be looking to. Australia is way ahead of us. Australia has a national regulator. New Zealand has a national regulator, although they call it a censorship officer, which is not a good term. But other countries have already advanced here where we're sort of stagnant. And, you know, and, and I know that it's something that we need to prioritize so that we have effective, you know, effective measures in Canada, but not ones that are, you know, are ones that would allow people to scream that their charter rights are being violated or allow for the pushback you would get if we, you know, try to overreach what legislature should be there doing. Well, I like how when you and your co-authors describe the task force's work, you wrote the task force can serve as a model for the collaboration necessary to protect all minority groups from online hate. But it's useful to start with anti-Semitism insofar as you have a, a Jewish people that are disproportionately targeted with hate speech and hate content online, especially in relation to the size of the population, at least here in Canada. Disproportionately, it remains Jewish people that that bear the brunt of hate speech as far as it goes in, in Canada today. And it's an enforcement challenge in some ways when it's proper hate speech. And, and, and that really is about ensuring that the platforms are working in partnership with law enforcement and that there's real accountability for the individuals that are engaging in this kind of speech. And there needs to be, there's, there are real life consequences when James Sears, you know, was spreading around your ward news uh, here in the central and beyond and full of anti-Semitism. And, and we took it to the public procurement minister around Canada Post. And, and that was pursued by her team incredibly diligently. And ultimately the criminal law came down and, and he and his editors were sent to, to prison. Real world consequences for real world publication. There aren't often the same real world consequences for online publications. And so that enforcement challenge is a real one. And then what you've identified around not hate speech per se, but other problematic content, content that would never be promoted by a traditional broadcaster because it would fail to meet their broadcasting ethics and standards, ensuring that there are those same ethics and standards that are brought to bear to social media platforms via algorithmic accountability and transparency. And there's a duty of care model in the UK, which you've referenced. The EU, I think, is a really interesting model around risk assessments and audits that I think could be incorporated in Canadian law too. And we kind of went with a, a, an initial whack-a-mole approach to say, take down content within 24 hours. And it sounds like we're revisiting that conversation in a more thoughtful, systemic way. So uh, we'll see where that leads. But your task force will be able to contribute to that Canadian conversation, given where it's at. Yeah, I agree completely. I think that the goal of the task force, uh, not only from the Canadian members, but for all the members, is to be able to go back to our countries with suggestions, with solutions that will, again, hopefully come from members of all parties combined. And and that is the way we have to approach it. And we have to understand that there's some countries like the United States, right, where the, the Bill of Rights, free speech pr provisions are more absolute than, 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 than what we have in Section 2 of our charter, because we have Section 1 that works with Section 2. And, and while in the United States, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater and you have you know, uh, you, you also have prior restraint issues that they make it more difficult to legislate um, on, on speech, even though the platforms are private companies and can do whatever they want. 
So, so we really need to work with the platforms, I think, to find solutions that work across borders. Because if you post something in the United States, everybody in Canada is going to see it. Even if, you know, even if it's not allowed in Canada, if you post it in the US, I can see it on this guy's Facebook. I can see it on Twitter. So, so the goal is to find some international way of dealing with an international issue. And I think, Nate, the way you've approached it through, through your committee, that way we're trying to do it through our committee, the more parliamentarians engage and, and hear feedback from each other, the better the solution will come to with is. And the more the platforms engage with us, the more they'll understand that this is an issue they can't ignore. You are more than an advocate in parliament. You are also an athlete who has participated and won many medals. See how I'm bringing it back to sports at the same time? And you had like seven medals in the Maccabee Games in 2013, five in 2017. This is all for swimming, I assume, uh, which I know you're a very competitive swimmer, part of our very early in the morning parliamentary swim team, um, which I, you know, it's like swim team in high school I had intended to join and then never did because it was too early in the morning. But I, uh, that's all to say, uh, 2022, the pandemic probably got in the way, but uh, we didn't see a house father defense of the, of the Maccabee record. Well, I, I, so I have to say that I, I don't think I've set any records. I, I've won, <laughs> I, I've won over, over the course of my, my, my life as a junior, um, when I, as, as an open athlete, uh, and then now as a master's athlete, I've won a lot of medals at the Maccabee games. And, and I don't think I've ever set a, a Maccabee record, but it, it's something that is very dear to me because to me, I'm not a religious person. I, I get my affinity with my community through other things. And one of the things that I really have identified with Jewish people throughout the world is sport, um, where we come together and meet as athletes. And it's been tremendous to meet people from around the world, become friends, bonding over sports. And so every four years, I, I, you know, I train very hard. Four years, I, I try to do two meets. I try to do world championships on, the, on, on every second year. And I try to do Maccabee Games every four years. And and those are my big meets. You know, I'll do a couple of smaller ones a year. And 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 I I really put a lot of effort into it. And because of the pandemic, pools were closed for a considerable period of time. And then tr- teams couldn't train together. So me going and swimming laps is not the same as me doing training with with the team. And and my Code St. Luke Aquatics team wasn't allowed to meet and train for months on end. So I did a meet earlier this year to think about whether I should go to the Maccabee Games. And I'll give you an example. You know, my time for the 200 free in 2017 uh, was 2.13, which I, I came second in, in the Maccabee Games, um, in the Masters, uh, in, in, in the 200 freestyle. That was long course. I went to an event this year to see how I would swim the 200 free. I went 2.23 short course, which is about four seconds, three or four seconds slower than long course. So basically, I immediately said, there's absolutely no way I'm going to go embarrass <laughs> myself and not only not win or be medal or make finals, I, I would be like just too embarrassed because I assume that in other countries, this, the closures have not been that much and people were, you know, going to do comparable times to what the times were in 2017. So I just didn't want to put myself through that. I'm too competitive. You know, just like you, Nate, I, you don't want to win an election. You're going to lose. You don't want to ever do anything to lose. I don't want to do anything where I feel that my times are going to be uncompetitive. So I just didn't go. Well, you mentioned elections and competitiveness. I did notice, by the way, that your support has increased every election 2015 to 2019 to 2021. Not every MP can can point to that same record. And on a personal note, I think you're intending too, to go play in the Queens Alumni Baseball Tournament on Labor Day weekend. And 
you know, it's a very, I'm not going to, I'm going to embarrass myself no matter what, Anthony. So <laughs> I'm not going to test it out before I go. <laughs> I bet I hear you, Dave. Like, I mean, like if I was doing another sport, right? Like I play tennis all the time uh, and I couldn't care less in the club tournament. Like, I mean, I, I always want to win, but I, I don't care if I lose in the first round. I, I, I don't care when I'm playing baseball, if my team loses, I don't care if I'm running a 10 K and I do it in 46 minutes when everybody else can do it in 38 minutes. Like none of the, none of these things, matter to me it's only swimming because i've done it all my life as a competitor and i've done it at a high level that i care about how i do yeah and no, i like, get it I, I joke about baseball i i know i'm not going to throw as hard i know my curveball is not going to be as tight but i do want to go and be able to throw strikes well enough when, when we went down and visited family in michigan i was throwing the ball around a little bit i'm gonna throw the ball around a little bit before the labor day weekend i i I'm, I don't truly want to embarrass. I'm not going to, I don't want to walk guys basically is what it yeah. comes down to. Yeah. yeah. You don't want to, you don't, you, you don't, you don't want to throw wild pitches and, you know, and have the guy you walked before get, get home based on your wild pitches on the next guy. And you don't want your last experience in the sport to be that, you know, I don't and so think this I, will be your last experience. Like I'm not going to go back to Maccabee until, unless, unless and until I'm in shape and I want, and, and, and I'm going to succeed because you had such a strong track record. Yeah. 2017 being your last year is better than a, uh, a, a last minute 2022 that where you're not going to feel your best exactly but i'm hoping i'll go back in 2025 sweet well i, I think it's it's uh, not often that i see colleagues who are able to get into the weeds of policy maintain a sense of their own independence while also supporting government initiatives at the same time and being a team player and also finding a way to have balance in their lives to pursue sports and to pursue other activities. So you you do seem to piece it all together. And at the same time, as you seem to have lived a life in politics, while you're still pretty well liked by those who got you there, which not everyone can say either, because you've from councillor to mayor to now MP, you've, I think, successfully fought a number of battles on behalf of constituents and, and your community. But uh, it's nice to see that they keep sending you back to represent them. Oh, thanks, Nate. Same, same back. I mean, I, I know that you've increased your maturities as well each time, which is, again, like you said, quite, quite rare. Well, Anthony, thanks for joining me. And I, uh, there are lots of things we talked about, and but uh, the one that I'm really interested in pursuing after this conversation is the online disinformation piece, because I, we've chatted about it in around sort of on the margins, but you and I have both pretty seriously worked on it in different ways, and it would be useful to sit down when we get back to Parliament and work out how we can constructively work together, because it is going to come before my committee at the Industry Committee via privacy legislation. It'll be before Heritage before we know it as well. So I look forward to working with you when we get back, and, and thanks for joining. Likewise. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. There are many issues we could have touched on. I'm sure we could have talked for a solid two hours. So I'm glad I finally had him on the podcast and I hope you enjoyed it as well. We recorded this episode on August 23rd. So I do need to get a little bit better about turnaround time for posting these episodes when we're talking about current events, but we're doing the best we can. You can always reach out to me to suggest guests and topics at BEY Nate on social media or at info at BEY Nate.ca by email. And otherwise, until next time.